You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 239 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, thanks for tuning into the podcast. When we left off last time, it was a sad state of affairs for Ambrose Burnside and the Army of the Potomac in the aftermath of the federal defeat at the Battle of Fredericksburg in December 1862. Abraham Lincoln was worried because it was becoming increasingly obvious that Burnside had lost the confidence of his principal subordinates. Some of the discontented generals were pushing to have McClellan restored to command. And then there was Joe Hooker, who made little secret of his contempt for Burnside and was intriguing to obtain command of the army for himself. Morale in the ranks was sinking to a new low. A soldier from Maine wrote to his sister that, quote, The great cause of liberty has been managed by knaves and fools. The whole show has been corruption. The result, disaster, shame, and disgrace. To make matters worse, Burnside wasn't such a great administrator. With the resources of the North at his back and army warehouses bulging with supplies, Union troops nevertheless suffered from poor food, poor medical care, rampant sickness, and weak discipline. Many soldiers hadn't been paid in months. As the calendar turned over from 1862 to 1863, desertions from the Army of the Potomac increased to epidemic proportions during a bleak January. Meanwhile, most Confederates, of course, rejoiced over their remarkable victory at Fredericksburg. They had, after all, just given the Yankees a good thrashing, and that was worth celebrating. Robert E. Lee, however, was disappointed by the outcome, since the Federals had been beaten, but not decisively. The enemy had successfully retreated back to the far side of the Rappahannock, and now the two armies once again stood eyeing each other across the river. So in the end, not much had actually changed, to Lee's disappointment. In contrast to their commander, the rank and file of the Army of Northern Virginia thought the battle at Fredericksburg had been the most decisive of the war, and thought it would no doubt help bring the war to an end sooner rather than later. Confederates wrote scornfully of Burnside's ability, and boasted that they had soundly defeated the best troops in the Union Army. This attitude reinforced a growing perception of Southern invincibility on the battlefield. 
a member of the 8th Georgia voiced the widespread belief that, quote, we can whip a million of them. A southern officer echoed that boast, saying, this army can never be whipped by all the power of Yankeedom combined. In his first seven months of command, Robert E. Lee had molded a disjointed green organization into a capable, aggressive army, and the troops not only exuded confidence, but also idolized their commanding general. A certain awe had already surrounded the fascinating figure of Stonewall Jackson, but the rise of Lee with Jackson created a tandem that promised tremendous success. No one, of course, suspected that the two had fought their last full battle together. It's only with the benefit of hindsight, though, that we can know Stonewall Jackson would be mortally wounded at Chancellorsville in the spring of 1863. But another dark cloud looming on the horizon for the Confederates was the winter of scarcity and shortage they would endure after the Battle of Fredericksburg. In its winter quarters, the Army of Northern Virginia would be forced to rely on a single-track railroad for a steady trickle of supplies. Severe shortages of food and fodder would force Robert E. Lee to disperse his army and divide his forces. The winter of scarcity the army endured after Fredericksburg would play a significant role in Lee's decision to assume the offensive in the summer of 1863 after success at Chancellorsville in May allowed Lee to seize the strategic initiative and advance into Pennsylvania to gather supplies and seek the decisive victory that had so far eluded him. When we left Ambrose Burnside at the end of the last episode, he had just returned to the Army of the Potomac shortly after New Year's, after the unsatisfactory conclusion of a quick round of meetings with Abraham Lincoln. At two of the meetings, which were also attended by Secretary of War Edwin Stanton and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck, the four men debated strategy but failed to reach a consensus about what the Army ought to do next. As you guys will recall from the last show, when two generals, McClellan flunkies, Newton and Cochran, had shown up at the White House and told the president that if the Army of the Potomac crossed the Rappahannock again, the result would be disaster, well, Lincoln at the last minute had forced Burnside to cancel the new offensive movement he'd planned after the defeat at Fredericksburg. That unexpected check on his plans had been the cause for Burnside's trip to Washington. Now Burnside left Washington deflated that he was now an army commander who couldn't use his army as he saw fit. But nevertheless, he still wanted to cross the Rappahannock and have another go at the Confederates. And so, after the inconclusive New Year's meetings and Burnside's return to the army, Lincoln sat down and wrote a letter to Henry Halleck instructing him to go into the field to visit the Army of the Potomac to consult with the generals, examine the ground, and make a decision whether or not to authorize Burnside's movement. The president told the general-in-chief, If in such a difficulty you do not help, you fail me precisely in the point for which I sought your assistance. Your military skill is useless to me 
if you will not do this. When he read those words, Halleck immediately submitted his resignation. Lincoln, however, hadn't meant to provoke that response, so the president agreed to take back the letter. It was then filed away with a notation in Lincoln's hand, saying that it had been withdrawn, quote, because considered harsh by General Halleck. It was harsh, but deservedly so. You see, Halleck had turned out to be a disappointment to Lincoln as general-in-chief. Halleck claimed that the commanding general of a field army should be given a free hand to determine operations and tactics because he was the man on the ground, while the general-in-chief was miles away, sometimes hundreds of miles away. In November, Halleck had written to one of them, saying, quote, I have always avoided giving positive instructions to generals commanding departments, leaving them the exercise of their own judgment while giving them my opinion and advice. There was some merit in Halleck's position, but only up to a point, and Abraham Lincoln had quickly realized that Halleck's philosophy was simply a rationalization to escape the responsibility of making major decisions. The president later told one of his secretaries, John Hay, that Halleck had turned out to be nothing but a first-rate clerk. But Lincoln needed a military clerk, so he kept Halleck on. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As Lincoln, Halleck, and Burnside engaged in a three-way correspondence to try to hash out a new offensive for the Army of the Potomac, what ultimately led to a new movement by the Army was Union success down in North Carolina. You see, a force of 10,000 Federals had struck out from the coast into the Carolina interior in December, taking Kinston and pushing on to Goldsboro before retiring back to New Bern. In response to this threat, Robert E. Lee had detached Ransom's division and sent it southward on January 3rd. 
The northern press, however, erroneously reported that tens of thousands of rebel troops had left the Army of Northern Virginia to go to North Carolina and also to reinforce Braxton Bragg out west. And so, sensing an opportunity for a victory in Virginia, Abraham Lincoln encouraged Burnside to strike Lee while he was supposedly weakened by those losses. By the middle of January, Burnside had developed a plan to move most of the army upstream and cross the Rappahannock above Fredericksburg at Banks and U.S. Fords. A diversionary force would bluff a crossing below the town near Muddy Creek. Burnside issued orders on the 16th to begin the movement the following day. He postponed the march, though, to check out reports that the Confederates were on the move. By January 18th, scouts confirmed that there was a strong force of rebels blocking U.S. Ford, but Banks Ford remained relatively unguarded. Burnside, therefore, decided to concentrate on crossing the river at Banks Ford. The operation was to start on the 20th. Most Union soldiers expressed surprise when they received the orders on January 16th to prepare for a new offensive. For many, the initial surprise quickly turned to deep skepticism or outright opposition. Units openly said they didn't want to cross the river in another movement in the middle of winter. A lieutenant in a Massachusetts regiment reported, The utmost dissatisfaction almost insubordination, was shown here at the prospect of an attack. Out-and-out opposition to the proposed movement boiled up among the ranks of the Army's top officers. For their own reasons, Joe Hooker and McClellanites, such as William Franklin, scoffed at the plan. An artillery officer remembered that on January 20th, even as the Army began to move, the lack of enthusiasm amongst the generals was very evident. He noted, quote, The whole army seems to know what they have said, and their speeches condemning the move were in the mouths of everyone. The Federals broke camp late on the morning of Tuesday, January 20th, quote, under threatening weather with a chilly wind blowing from the east, end quote. Units made their assigned marches and settled into bivouacs, but hardly had night fallen before the first drops of a cold rain sent a shudder through the shelterless army. Those first drops were the beginnings of a storm that would define an unfortunate chapter in the history of the Army of the Potomac, the Mud March. A soldier in a New York regiment stated, quote, It does not describe the situation by simply saying it rained. The wind blew a gale and rocked the trees spitefully. The night was very dark, end quote. A solid sheet of near-freezing precipitation descended with a vengeance on the Virginia countryside and wrapped the Federal Army in its merciless grip. The dismal night of January 20th, 21st, would never fade from the memories of the Union troops who endured it. One soldier remembered how, quote, Our blankets were wet through, and we found ourselves lying in a pool of ice-cold water. No one got a wink of sleep. And all, in that cheerless wilderness of trees and mud, agreed that it was the most tedious night that we had ever passed. On the morning of the 21st, Burnside's timetable suffered along with the men, but he took no steps to cancel the offensive. 
Horses, mules, wagons, caissons, and limbers became hopelessly mired in the Virginia mud. A member of the Fifth Corps thought that, quote, a statement of the awful condition of the roads might exhaust all the adjectives in the English language and yet not exaggerate the actual condition of things. Numerous accounts tell of mules drowning in mud holes. One man recollected how, quote, it was no uncommon thing to see twenty horses hitched to a cannon, usually drawn by four, sticking fast on a road as level as a floor. End quote. Unhappy soldiers joined the toiling beasts in attempting to extract wagons, ambulances, and guns from the mud. Dragging the big wagons with the pontoons toward the river was an especially awful task. One engineer, Tang in cheek, requested, quote, fifty men, twenty-five feet high, to work in mud eighteen feet deep. One officer said, I don't know how the world's surface looked after the flood in Noah's time, but I am certain it could not have appeared more saturated than does the present surface of the Old Dominion. The army's morale plunged in direct proportion to the men's exposure to the unrelenting elements. One soldier later reflected that, quote, It would be hard to tell which was the meanest time the Army of the Potomac ever had, but for mud, rain, cold, drowned-out men, horses, mules, and abandoned wagons and batteries, for pure, unadulterated demoralization and downright cussedness, this took the cake. Robert E. Lee had taken steps to counter the Federal movement against his left flank, and now Confederates on the opposite shore of the river did their best to contribute to the enemy's unhappiness. They erected large signs with sarcastic messages like, Burnside stuck in the mud. Disaffected officers such as Hooker and Franklin expressed deepening opposition to continuing the operation, opinions they shared freely with anyone who would listen. Hooker bluntly informed a reporter that he considered Burnside incompetent. Finally, on January 22nd, Burnside decided to throw in the towel and cancel the operation. He ordered the army to return to its camps. This, however, was easier said than done because of the horrible condition of the roads. Troop morale continued to decline, discipline in many units disintegrated, and order vanished. The surgeon of the 77th New York noted, The mud was deep, the day was gloomy, and the men discouraged. They straggled badly. Regiments were not to be distinguished. The whole column became an unorganized crowd pressing toward the old camps. The absolutely wretched conditions they endured from January 20th through the 24th during the mud march wrung much of the remaining spirit out of the Army of the Potomac. More than the Battle of Fredericksburg, the mud march eroded the men's trust in Burnside. Alpheus Williams summed up his thoughts on January 24th, writing, I think the commander has very little confidence in himself, and the army generally reciprocates the feeling.
Ambrose Burnside believed that more than the weather and the elements had conspired against him. He had finally had enough of the poisonous backbiting, and to put an end to it once and for all, he prepared General Orders Number 8, which was dated January 23rd. General Orders Number 8 was a stunning document. Burnside ordered that Hooker be dismissed from the service, accusing him of, quote, having been guilty of unjust and unnecessary criticisms of the actions of his superior officers. Burnside also directed that Generals William Brooks, John Newton, and John Cochran be dismissed from the service. Brooks had been under arrest for insubordination, and Burnside had learned that Newton and Cochran were the two generals who had met with Lincoln. As for William Franklin and Baldy Smith, Burnside ordered them relieved from duty, along with three other men, Division Commander Samuel Sturgis, a brigade commander, and Franklin's chief of staff. When he was cautioned that he needed the president's approval to execute the order, Burnside wired Lincoln that he was coming to Washington with, quote, some very important orders, and I want to see you before issuing them. Lincoln met with Burnside on the morning of January 24th. Burnside handed the president General Orders Number 8 and his Major General's Commission. Burnside said Lincoln either had to endorse the order or accept his resignation. He could no longer command the army with those officers in it. Lincoln replied that he wanted to consult with his advisors and asked Burnside to return to the White House the next day. The next morning, the President summoned Stanton and Halleck to the White House. Lincoln told the Secretary of War and General-in-Chief that he had decided to accept Burnside's resignation and replace him with Joe Hooker. He was making the change, Lincoln told them, because of, quote, the unfortunate state of existing circumstances. When Burnside met with Lincoln at 10 o'clock, the President informed the General of his decision. Lincoln refused, however, to accept Burnside's resignation of his commission, instead insisting he take a 30-day leave of absence and then report for duty as the country still needed his services. When he passed the baton to Hooker on January 26, 1863, Ambrose Burnside had been in command of the Army of the Potomac for two months, two weeks, and two days. In his farewell message to the army, he expressed his gratitude to the soldiers for their, quote, courage, patience, and endurance that under more favorable circumstances would have accomplished great results. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Encyclopedia of the American Civil War, A Political, Social, and Military History by David S. Heidler and Jean T. Heidler. This has been one of our go-to reference works since the very beginning of the podcast, so we thought it's probably high time it was a book recommendation. It's chock full of Civil War goodness, and at over 2,700 pages, you can always use it as a hefty doorstop when you aren't paging through it looking for some enlightenment with regard to an obscure reference that we've made on the podcast. So that's Encyclopedia of the American Civil War, A Political, Social, and Military History 
by David S. Heidler and Jean T. Heidler. You can find a complete list of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can start the process to sign up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade. With your recurring monthly payment, you're not only supporting the ongoing work that we've been doing here for over five years, telling the story of the Civil War, but you also get access to 69 members' episodes. In fact, it was just yesterday that we released members' episode number 69, which was the first of two shows that we're going to use to look at the first plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln in Baltimore in February 1861, and how that experience affected Lincoln's attitude toward his protection during the rest of his administration. We want to thank the newest members to sign up, Joan, Eric, and Alon, who also sent us a lovely note from Israel. Well, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you join us again next time when we head out to Tennessee to begin our discussion of the Battle of Stones River. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.